Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. My name is David Nasby, and I will be moderating today's forum. The Westminster Town Hall Forum originates from the sanctuary of Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. This is the second in our series, uh, in, the, in the forum series, to focus on the issue of children and violence cultivating a change. We are very pleased to welcome Betty Williams today. In 1976, Betty Williams and Madrid Corrigan McGuire, were, and you don't need to know what uh, country they are from, uh, were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their work against the violence in Northern Ireland. These two women, a Protestant and a Catholic, organized a series of mother's marches to promote peace and justice through cooperation. Betty Williams is the founder of World Centers of Compassion for Children, an organization dedicated to providing safe havens for children. She has been honored for her work with the Schweitzer Medallion for Courage, the Martin Luther King Jr. Award, and the Eleanor Roosevelt Award. She is currently a professor in both the Peace and the Women's Studies Department at Florida Atlanta University. Please join me in welcoming Betty Williams. Good morning, everybody. Oh, good, you're all alive. I figure if I've got to be up here at 12 o'clock in, in, in the day uh, giving a talk, because lectures are not what I do. Um, I've had to sit through so many long-winded academic intellectual lectures in my lifetime that I swore I'd never perpetrate that act of violence on anyone. <laughs> so I want the young people that we have come in today to really relax and try and listen to what I'm saying, because this is not Betty Williams' story. It is indeed the children, the children of the world story. It's got nothing to do with me. Um, I don't know why God makes decisions as he does. And I often say that God's sense of humor is really very difficult to figure out, especially in my case, because I'm not a quote-unquote holy roller. In fact, I'm very frightened of people who are too good. Maybe that goes back to my Irish Catholicism, where my mother used to say when we were too good, you better watch that halo doesn't slip and become a noose. <laughs> so I, I got loaded with tons of Irish Catholic guilt, uh, was educated by nuns, God bless them at the time. I hated it, but now I love it because they instilled some really sound values in me. One was conscience. And so when I became the leader of the women of Northern Ireland towards peace and reconciliation between the women of our land. I didn't realize on that day, August 10th, 1976, exactly what the Almighty's plan was. I think if I had have done, I might have just closed my front door, uh, pulled my Venetian blinds and never have gone out again. Because I wasn't a person who ever wanted to be a public speaker. And as you see, I can't read from a script I have only one thing which I'll read to you at the end of this talk. I was never an expert in children except in the field of being a mother. Maybe I should take that back and say when you're a mother you obviously are an expert on children. But I certainly wasn't an expert on the world's children. The peace movement in Northern Ireland was born because of the death of three beautiful children on a Belfast street one day. And that's how it was it erupted into existence because I think what happened was, I can't remember who said, nothing is as strong as an idea whose time has come. What happened to the women of Northern Ireland was, for many, many years, since the year 1963, we had been living in, a, in really a, a society which was becoming terribly, terribly sick. For instance, we could distinguish gunfire you know you live in a very sick society when you can tell, tell the difference between a self-loading rifle and an armalite. We knew that indiscriminate doorstep killings and injustice that were perpetrated on our streets were not right. But we were all very frightened because we had organizations on it. We had nine armies on the street. We just didn't have provisional IRA. That's the only army you ever hear about. 
But we had the UDA, the UVF, the, they had all nine of them, and the only, the only supposed illegal one was the British Army. So when the violence of Northern Ireland became a, a sickening cycle, and we all became more and more afraid, I, like everybody else in Northern Ireland, stuck to my home. I had the my syndrome, you know, like it wasn't my child, it wasn't my house, it wasn't my car. But the truth was, it was my house, it was my car, it was my child. Because my own family suffered two deaths. One young man destroyed by a, a Protestant act of violence. He was shot to death outside his own front door coming home from work, Daniel Dunn at 17 years old. The other one blown up in an IRA bomb. Both Catholics, one killed by Protestants, one killed by Catholics. But something happened the day when the Maguire children died that threw me over the edge, that broke the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Because you see, I couldn't understand why children had to die in war. There's not a child in the world who could walk through the door of the house of God or anywhere and declare war on anyone. So to call children accidents of war is simply for me not acceptable. And to get children caught up in war for me is simply not acceptable. And for many years the givers of life, we women, have been too silent about that. I mean I, I thought sometimes think that I know that childbearing is not an easy thing to do, and birthing a child is very painful. But God must have loved me to entrust me with bringing forth his creations. Because that's what he gave to me when he, when he designed my womb. He, how he gave me a house to bring forth the future generations. But he also must have told me that I had to protect it. Sometimes I wonder if we all see the face of God. Will he, will he not question that? I gave you women my gift of procreation. What did you do to protect it? Because for years we've been guilty of allowing our sons to join armies and thinking that the heroes in our lives wore uniforms and etc., etc., etc. Wrong training. We have to develop a different set of heroes. The heroes in my life are not men with guns in their hands. They're the fellows that care as to whether the guy next door has a loaf of bread on his table. They're men like the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I love to say his name because I love him and he's my hero. They're men like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, whose nonviolent ways and spirituality overcome everyone who stands even close to this wonderful man. They're my heroes. And if women have to have heroes, please let them not be the wrong type. Let them be the correct type of heroes. And when the women of Northern Ireland got onto the streets, the acts of courage that I witnessed personally were beyond belief. And this was not just a separation since 1969 that we're talking about until the year 1976. People say that they never see miracles. If you watch, you'll see one every single day of your life, if you really watch for it. Or you can even make one happen. I never used to believe that kind of thing, but I know now you can. Because when this simple housewife stood up and yelled at the top of her voice, we've got to stop this insanity. All I did was say what the other women were thinking. It was easy to bring them along, because that's exactly how they felt. And then the day that the women came together, I'd gone on television. I'd gone out collecting signatures for peace. Now, this is hysterically funny. I laugh at it now, but at the time, maybe it wasn't so funny, because I was so angry as to what we were doing to the children that I went out that same night that the children died, and I began to bang on doors. Did you hear the way I say bang? I didn't knock. I was really, really, really angry. I still am. But when I went out to knock the doors, and I, I was yelling at the women, how can we live like this? We are cowards if we don't protect our children. I mean, I was saying some awful things, and my language wasn't very good. 
And, and the women were signing this so-called peace petition from this crazy mad woman on their doorstep who was anything but peaceful. And afterwards, a lot of those women told me they were afraid not to sign the peace petition. <laughs> Whatever it took. And then I went on television and I said, to, still in this anger, said to the women of Northern Ireland that if they did, felt like I did, would they join me in a rally the following Saturday at the spot where the children had died? In the interim, Maria Corrigan called me. She had heard about what I was doing, and she asked me, to, could, she join, could she join me? And that was the stupidest question in the world. God love her, could she join me? Our family had just lost so much. And I remember a newspaper person saying to me, how many do you expect to turn up at this rally? Well, you know, I hadn't even given that a thought. It never occurred to me. But I remember saying, well, if it's only two, if it's only Maria Cardigan and myself, well, I knew my cousin Francis would be there and my sister Margaret, so that was four. But I, only, I, only, I said, if it's only Maria Cardigan and myself, we'll be there. I guess God had other ideas. 10,000 women turned up. They had hired buses from all over the city of Belfast. And when the buses stopped, the women were running towards each other in one powerful act of love, because that's what it was. We wiped out 300 years of hatred and misunderstanding. Love knows no boundaries. God tells us that. Only the boundaries that we are putting on it. And one powerful act of love, they were together. And then we start, we called a series of rallies, 12 in all, and each rally got bigger. The second rally, 36,000. The third rally, 50,000, until we had the last and final rally in Trafalgar Square, in which they tell us there were nearly a quarter of a million people. That showed us how we felt. But we also knew that the problems of Northern Ireland could not be cured by rallying alone. And you will meet people who will go out and sing for peace. I've done it even though I've got a terrible voice, I've sang for peace. I prayed for it certainly. Sometimes I've prayed in anger that God's not sent it just fast enough. But we work on his time clock and you never see the whole paragraph. You only see the one sentence and you have to wait until God finishes that whole paragraph before you can see what's really happening. I had a hard time with that one too because I'm very impatient. My father said that I was definitely in the backside department when the faces were given out, and that I certainly was definitely not in the right department when God handed out the patients. So I wasn't a person that really, I had this ultimate dream, this ultimate goal, that we could bring together and reconcile the people of Northern Ireland. And I wasn't a political person because I was so sick of seeing how politics destroyed people in my country because we didn't vote for the politician, we voted for the religion, which is absolutely crazy. And so our work as women in Northern Ireland, so-called ordinary housewives, have any of you ever met an ordinary housewife? Please, hands up anybody who has. Um, in fact, I've never met an ordinary anything. Everything is created different and totally extraordinary. But when we got onto the streets, we didn't have political aspirations. Our only aspiration was reconciling the people of Northern Ireland. When they would ask us political questions, they would think we were polit politically naive. Not so. I've heard people stand up and try and force a solution on the Northern Ireland situation by saying, I think we should have a federation of the British Isles. To which I replied, excuse me, point of information. Before you can have a federation, you have to have the two bits. Where are you going to get the two bits? Our sole purpose in Northern Ireland as the peace movement was to create from the bottom up those two bits. For those who say the peace movement in Northern Ireland failed, and I've read that a lot of times, that's bull honky. It's the greatest load of drivel you've ever heard in your life. And it also insults every woman's intelligence, who for the last 23 years in the history of Northern Ireland has worked on a daily basis 
to change that situation. When women would come together and men wouldn't, when women were suffering because their men were saying to them, I don't want you mixing with a Catholic or I don't want you mixing with a Protestant, to which the woman would reply, hard luck, because that's what I'm going to do. When the Pope came to visit Ireland, we had cases of courage which were incredible because Protestant women wanted to, to see the Holy Father. And we encouraged that because Mairead and I had gone to meet the Queen. How can you talk about reconciliation unless you're prepared to show it? How can you talk about anything that you're not prepared to do the work for? And how can you be an expert on any subject unless you know the person that you're speaking about the subject to? So we bypassed and walked that middle road. We bypassed everything and kept right on that middle road. And it took 23 years. We said it would take 50, but in only 23 years we had a referendum which said overwhelmingly last year what the people of Northern Ireland felt. That's what the peace movement worked for. That's what it achieved. It, it did not work for a political voice. It worked for a political solution. And that's what we did. It's an insult to the Northern Irish women to say that they did any less. And if anybody honestly thinks that Gerry Adams got out of bed on August and, and a couple of years ago and declared peace, Gerry Adams, the political wing of Provisional IRA, that is naive. That's like trying to deny Alexander Ginsburg or Solzhenitsyn or any of the wonderful people who chipped away, chipped away at that communist regime until it caved in. Peace does not fall from heaven. Peace has got to be worked for. And when, when Mairead and I received the Nobel Peace Prize, we didn't start the peace movement to become either famous or to get a Nobel Prize. But we took the responsibility of the Nobel Prize very seriously. And we realized, as women, because only nine women in history have ever won it, the kind of responsibility that this would place on us. And we took it very seriously. Now, for some unknown reason, and Bishop Tutu often says this, before he became a laureate, sometimes people listened to what he had got to say. But when he became a laureate, suddenly his words became pearls of wisdom. I mean, who's going to listen to Betty Williams' quote-unquote ordinary housewife? But Betty Williams, Nobel laureate? Maybe she has a little intellect. You see, the press are always doing that too. They created us as like all these ordinary housewives who were very emotional and got onto the streets, but they didn't have too many neurons. That's another insult to the intellect of any woman. It might sound to you as though I'm anti-men. Definitely not. I absolutely love men. And it's going to take men and women together to change what's wrong in our world. And I have the most wonderful family of men gentle, kind, and wonderful men. And I never felt any lesser to a man because I had a father who never made me feel that way. So it's not me saying to the men of the world, you're all rotten and you should shut up and da-da-da-da. I'm a very liberated woman, but I often say that I love men enough to save their lives. That's how much I love them. I have a son and a grandson. I don't want to see them die in violence. Why should I? And if I was bad when I was a mother, I'm far worse as a grandmother. Since I've had my three grandbabies, I am a thousand times more even dedicated to the work that I'm doing because I want a better life for them. But in Northern Ireland, people then started to look at me, well, not, not in Northern Ireland so much, but on the outside of Northern Ireland, in Europe and in the world, as though I was an expert on children. And I would get these invitations to go places. And my first invitation took me to Ethiopia. The second took me to Somalia. The third, Nigeria, Nicaragua, Argentina, Chile. And all of a sudden, God put me in a different place, a place that hurts so badly that sometimes I cannot cope with it. I speak to you now. I have to remember the children that I'm talking about. And it really hurts. It's painful to go out there and see what's happening to the children of the world. I remember being in a village in Ethiopia and a woman walked in 
that had had twins and she started a journey 300 miles away to try and get food because she knew that if she stayed in her village there would be no food and her children would die. So she started to march and on the journey she had to make the decision of which of her children she would let live because she did not have enough milk to sustain both twins. No woman should ever have to make that decision of what child to let die. Mother of God, that is just beyond comprehension. One of the children died. She buried him on the road. When she got to the village, it was too late. The other child died. And four days later, she died in a world that can feed itself. I refused to let that happen to my sister because that's what she was. Broke my heart. Second journey, I went to a village, 360 children starving to death, little babies that had no say in their lives and no chance at life. I leave these places after watching this kind of horror and I have to go and sit with people who tell me in government that defence budgets are necessary. These huge military budgets are much more necessary than feeding the people of the world. If we had 1%, one, now I didn't work this out, a wonderful man called George Schultz, he's an economist with a group called ACOR, and he has worked out if we had 1% per year of the world's military budgets, 1% that we could wipe out world hunger within two years. Why should a child starve because of that kind of insanity? We've just upped the military budget again. These are the issues that I'm dealing with. A couple of years, not about five years ago, Bishop Tutu and I were together on a journey. It's a journey that is grace and I will never forget until the day we die. We went to Thailand, we wanted to go to Burma, but there's an illegal ruling military junta in Burma called the SLORC, the State Law and Order Restoration Council. And the true leader of Burma, a wonderful lady called Aung San Suu Kyi, elected by 83% of the vote of 40 indigenous peoples, is virtually under house arrest by this terrible regime. And the regime wouldn't let us, there were eight laureates, eight peace laureates went on this journey, and the regime wouldn't let us in, which I guess politically was very good for us, because it showed how stupid this regime and how evil this regime was. But to not grant freedom to walk on God's earth anywhere is wrong, and governments should not have the power to do this. And so we went to Thailand, and we did a visit to the refugee camps between Thailand and Burma. By the way, for the young people, this country has been renamed by the illegal ruling military hunter. They now call it Myanmar. But we who work for peace and justice call it Burma and will never call it Myanmar. And I'm now going to tell you not my story, but one, the story of what happened, what I saw over there. Because if I can't stand up here in the house of God and speak for these children, I have no right to be doing this work. Especially, it makes it even more important because this is a house of God, that we speak the truth clearly and distinctly. And my job when I go out on these journeys is to interview the children. I take their testimonies. I sit down and I handwrite them. And I was put into a room with two of the most beautiful little girls you've ever seen. I don't know whether you know much about the Burmese people, but they are gorgeous. They have these cheekbones that go on forever. And you know, the Bambi kind of, oh, and the blue-black, shiny, gorgeous hair. One child was 12 and the other was 13. And this is their story, not mine. The Slork regime had entered their village and raped their mother in front of them. They then watched the mother and father dig the grave to be, and watched them be shot through the back of the head and thrown into that grave. The girls were then taken to be used as carriers for the military's equipment, very heavy equipment. And at night, sometimes during the day, maybe if they got a, a half a cup of rice, they were lucky. Those who fell by the wayside could be shot or bayoneted or kicked to death. And at night, it was very bad for the boys because everybody was starving, you know, but for the girls, it was a nightmare that just was endless because the Slark soldiers would take these children strip them naked and systematically rape them. Uh, that wasn't the end of the nightmare. Sometimes the slork soldiers would urinate on them. 
and a lot of times they would place the bayonets of their rifle into hot coals and place this into the child's vagina, and both children had AIDS. These are not made-up stories that I'm telling you. You multiply those two little girls by thousands, including the ones that are being sold into prostitution in Thailand, and you will see the kind of suffering that the children of the world are doing on a daily basis. I rage against that. And until God takes me from this earth, I will continue to rage against that. I will. And as I traveled the world, I began to realize that until these children are given some sort of political clout, they will indeed never have a voice. Because it wouldn't matter what UNESCO, UNICEF, Save the Children, the da da da, keep doing. It's only putting a band aid on a huge problem, and every year that problem increases. So I began an organization called World Centers of Compassion for Children, named, by the way, in honor of one of my heroes, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, because compassion is central to Buddhism, and so compassion was part of the thing we wanted to discuss on a daily basis when we talk about children. And I've decided that we're going to give the children of our world a political voice. And now the, the new millennium's coming up, and we're all hearing the year 2000, the millennium, millennium, millennium. That's another load of bull honky. It's just another day. And the true millennium is 2001. And we're going to be spending gazillions of dollars next year on another day. Why don't we take those gazillions of dollars and feed the hungry? Why are we doing the stupidest thing? Why are we always working at the wrong end of the donkey? And we wonder why this donkey keeps on pooping. Because we're doing it wrong. We're building bigger and better prisons and poorer and poorer ghettos. And as long as we keep the poorer and poorer ghettos, We'll build the bigger and bigger prisons. Duh. Turn the money to the ghetto, and you won't need the prison. It's sound common sense. One does not have to have degrees to talk about sound common sense. I remember a woman in Ireland going to one of our linen factories that was in the red. And I tell you simply what she told them. Well, you're making tablecloths at $400. I couldn't buy one and most women couldn't, why don't you make tea towels with these little Irish expressions on them and sell them cheaply at, at duty-free in Shannon Airport? Well, the, the, the factory pulled itself out of trouble within a year. And Mary McCarthy left school at 12, and she was the woman who told these, it's sound common sense. The more we spend on defence, the more I say to you, no doubt the dead and dying are gratified that they're being so well defended. Would you please stop defending them? What they need is sustenance. When people talk to me about birth control, you can't talk to a woman with an empty belly and tell her not to have a baby, because the only comfort they have are man and woman, out of that comes child. Feed her belly. Educate her. Then talk to her about birth control. Until you do these things, we will always be working at the wrong end of the donkey. So when I take these children's testimonies, I, I wrote a universal declaration of the rights of children. And last week I met a child so special that it was scary. He's 10 years old, his name is Greg Smith. Many of you will have seen him on Good Morning America when Diane Sawyer interviewed him. The child is at Randolph, uh, Randolph Macon College. And at 10 years old, he's a freshman. freshman. By the time he's 16, he probably will have about three doctorates. And God put this child into my life last week. And I couldn't believe in the, you know, because I prayed to God for years. I, when people say to me, what do, what do you work for? It says in the Bible, and a little child shall lead them. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. And what I say to people is, I'm trying to help Jesus find the little child. Last week, Jesus sent such a child because Greg has said that he will help our work 
and become a spokesperson for the children of the world. And you want to hear this boy speak. He is an incredible human being who sits at the feet of Jesus. He's a wonderful little boy. And when I asked him to read this Universal Declaration of the Rights of Children, and he studied it very carefully, and like a little professor, he, was, he looked like a little professor when he turned. He was scratching the side of his head, you know, and he said, it's absolutely perfect. Don't change a word. Because what we're going to do is take teams of children to the United Nations on a regular basis. We're going to have the second Mothers of the Earth for World Peace Summit at the UN. We're now trying to ask them very nicely to let us have the UN as a venue. It's, it's difficult to get the United Nations, but the children's voice belongs in there. And we're going to bring the creme de la creme of the female of the species, leaders of the world, and or their wives, like Bishop Tutu's wife will be there, Mrs. Mandela will be there, women of that caliber. And we're going to bring 36 children from all over the world to testify to us. Now, we're not coming out of this summit with a resolution. I'm so sick of resolutions. We're coming out with action. Because then we will form our teams of women and men, if they will join us, God willing, that will go out into the field and start to change things politically for the children. Because the children will be testifying in front of their delegates at the United Nations. Can you imagine the power of a child standing up and saying to the delegate, that's not the truth. That's not what's happening in my country. So what we're going to do is remove the middleman. The children don't need it. I have met children who can't read and write, but can explain distinctly and carefully what there's. Those two children in Thailand are a perfect example of how children can testify to what happened to them. We're going to make governments listen. We're going to start an independent and separate court for children all together, where they deal only with the children's issues. And we will bring to justice those who harm children. Until we do that, children will never have a voice. That's part of the work of World Centres of Compassion for Children. An enormous task, but we can do it. Anyway, I probably waffled on for about, I get so into it with the children, I'm sorry, I get a wee bit carried away. Especially when I go, I have to transfer my mind to where they are and, and then come back and that's a wee bit of a hard thing to do because it's awful hard to leave them. I remember when I left the children in Thailand, one of the little girls said to me, you smell so nice. The translator said to me, she said you smell really nice. And I remember reaching down into my purse, my handbag as we call it in Ireland, and giving her my perfume. And then going back to my hotel room and getting my soap and my deodorant and, my, and a little thing like that can make a child's life so totally different. But I also made a promise that I was going to fight to make sure this didn't happen to her again. And giving her a bottle of perfume is, is one thing. Fighting for her right to live is another and to live with dignity. You know, tears without action are wasted sentiment. You all know that, don't you? Make it stand up here and weep until the cows come home. But it's not going to change anything. I have to work for it. So this is the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Children, which someday, God willing, ladies and gentlemen, will be adopted by the United Nations and adhered to by governments. We, the children of the world, assert our inalienable right to be heard and to have a political voice at the United Nations and at the highest levels of governments worldwide. We, the children of the world, must live with justice, with peace and with freedom, but above all with the dignity we deserve. We, the children of the world, require a Marshall Plan, a Geneva Convention and a World Court of Human Rights which meets regularly to listen to the testimonies as to what is actually happening to us. We intend to provide our own testimonies. We, the children of the world, demand the right to be taken to safe shelters in situations of war. We, the children of the world, consider hunger, disease, forced labour and all forms of abuse and exploitation perpetrated upon us to be war. And we, the children of the world, until this day, June 20th, 1997, in the city of Vienna, Austria, have had no political voice. We demand such a voice. We, the children of the world, will develop our own leadership and set an example that will show governments how to live in peace and freedom. 
we the children of the world, serve notice on our abusers and exploiters, whoever they may be, that from this day hence we will begin the process of holding you responsible for our suffering. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Betty Williams. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from the Sanctuary of Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I am David Nasby, moderator of today's forum. Today's guest is Betty Williams, who has just spoken on the topic safe havens. While the ushers collect questions from our audience here at Westminster, I would like again to thank the sponsors of today's forum, the McKnight Foundation and the Star Tribune Foundation. We would also like to thank the staff members of the Washburn Child Guidance Center, the St. Joseph Home for Children, and the Harriet Tubman Center for their assistance in planning this series of forums. Now, Betty, if you would step back to the podium, we will begin the questions. First question, what do we do about guns? Well, uh, people might not agree with this, but why in God's holy name do you have to have guns in your community in the first place? I don't even think policemen should wear guns. I mean, I'm so anti-gun, I'm the wrong person to ask. You know, this thing we call defense kills more people than you could imagine, so I'm not for them. Ms. Williams, thank you. You have made the point that peace must come from the bottom up. Since 1988, we've been promoting a peaceful, healthy world through Children in the Peace uh, Site program. A, uh, 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 and since the 1996 Nobel Peace Prize Festival, may we duplicate your declaration for the, uh, the uh, peace uh, sites in Minnesota and throughout the world. Absolutely. Any one of you who want to use that, please feel free to do so, because it's not mine. It's only words written by me, but told to me by the children. So you're welcome to use it. Okay. Is military spending bad if it ensures freedom against dictatorships? That is, without the U.S. standing up against Russia, Poland, Czechoslovakia, would it still be under Russian control? That's the first question. And then the second is from the same questioner, do uh, U.S. children not deserve protection against foreign missiles? In a perfect world, we wouldn't need to defend ourselves. Uh, well, we better start with the first one again on the right. Russians. The okay. Russian is military spending bad if it ensures freedom against dictatorships? I don't know. I think the secret that we have to evolve to is not allowing military dictatorships to evolve. I'm asked the question all the time, well, if we hadn't stopped Hitler, uh, what would have happened? Well, my grandfather was Polish Jew, so we lost our family to Hitler. Uh, the secret will be not allowing these kinds of people to evolve in our world. Once you've allowed the problem to evolve, then you have to deal with it. And usually the way we deal with these things is militarily. I'd like to go a wee bit deeper, if I may, because um, that question, I think, has to be addressed a bit deeper than that. When we went to war in the Gulf, we have to really ask ourselves, excuse me, why did we go to war? We didn't go to war in the Gulf to protect human rights, that's for sure, if the truth be told. Because Kuwait, especially in the field of human rights against women, has one of the worst records in the world. So, and we went to war to defend oil-rich sheikdoms. If the truth be told, that's exactly what we did. But it was a very popular war, and it really, meant, it really sustained our oil supply. Get real about the wars that we create and go to. And a lot of times we create the enemy. Saddam Hussein was not always an enemy of the United States of America. In fact, at one time we supported him. If you have to tell it, tell the whole truth, you know? So there's so much deviousness that goes on within the governmental circles that it's very difficult to distinguish truth. And Eisenhower said, the first thing to go in any war is truth. And that's exactly what happens, you know? I'm very anti-war, whether it be... I, I think we have to evolve to, this, to the 
to true, I mean, true enlightenment is really not having to go to war, isn't it? Uh, we're so enlightened technologically, but we have not discovered the secret of learning to live together. We've got to re-evaluate re everything we do. Uh, before uh, the oh, session... Russia. I forgot Russia. Sorry. Right. I go to Russia regularly, and I know that we used to look at them as, quote-unquote, Reagan's words, the evil empire. Um, I, I didn't meet evil people in Russia. I met people who were just as afraid of you as you were of them. Let's, when we talk about people, let's forget governments if we can. Because in China, there are some wonderful people, yet their government is appallingly bad. So let's not brush them on as being... I met Russians who were just so magnificent. And I work in Russia a lot. In fact, I'm going to Russia next week, and then I'm going to Georgia because we've rebuilt, with the Frank Foundation Childcare International, we've rebuilt orphanages, we've built orphanages and rebuilt orphanages over there. And Russia's in a terrible state because we all wanted to see communism collapse. And we, we said how horrible it was, but when it did collapse, there was no safety net put up. If we had supported Russia fully when she needed the economic support, I'm not just talking about the United States, I'm talking about the whole of the Western world. We wouldn't be having the problems that we're having now with Russia, and we would have had a great friend. We do things wrong. When the answer comes, when communism fell in on itself, which is really what it did, it collapsed in on itself, they couldn't sustain it anymore. We didn't help the people there to become capitalists. We shoved them into capitalist societies that they didn't understand. Sorry. Russia's not the enemy. We're the enemy. And not very far from that, uh, the uh, question here is, how can we diminish violence in America, in the, in the United States, when it's so pervasive in the entire society, the widespread availability of ha handguns, violence in the media, death penalty, violence uh, as a significant part of foreign policy, such as embargoes and military action. I mean, it's, it's part of the culture. What are, what are some of your cues for us, some ideas for us? Well, it's, it, that would take a whole, a whole re-education of the United States. Um, everything seems to be solved here, either down the barrel of a gun, or, you know, even for America to go out and become the world's policeman is awful dangerous. And I say that with a love for this country, because you can't police the world. Right here in the United States, you have 30 million hungry people of which 12 million are children. I don't think it's democratic to go tell somebody else what to do when you have those kinds of problems yourselves. I would ask America not just to look out, but look in at yourself and tell the truth about it, because you can't talk about democracy when you have 30 million hungry people. But democracy is something that's practiced, not talked about. It's like, it's like saying you love God. You have to walk the walk. You know, you can't just stand up and spout about it. You have to walk the walk. I don't see that happening here. I think it's a shame. Because the other thing that we have to re-educate to, if you really love your country, I was sick to death of hearing people say, he died for Ireland. You know, if you really loved your country, surely to God you'd want to live for it, not die for it. I mean, that's crazy thinking. To say, well, I love this country so much, I'm going to die for it. Why do we transform that to living for it and make it a better place to live in? Say a few things about your continuing work in, in Northern Ireland. Well, I go back and forward now and again, but the truth is I've done myself out of a job. I remember thinking to myself, if I do this job right, I won't be needed. And then I was awful disappointed when I wasn't, you know? It's grown and grown and grown. The idea was planted, it was watered, the seeds grew into flowers and I move on to what I'm doing now, which is a much bigger... I, I, got, my, I got my training on the streets of Belfast for, for the way I was to develop in the world, and I'm very grateful for that, because I've, I've gone up, I think, hopefully, a step in the, in the nonviolent issues by learning exactly what's going on in the world, by not sitting in a classroom reading about it, but by going out and experiencing it. Uh, related to the, uh, to the statement, uh, UN statement, please explain what you mean by World Children's Court. And the questioner says, where would it take place? Who would act as advocates for children in each country? What power would the court have to alter actions toward children in any given country? 
Well, there's one at The Hague, which is very, very good because they have lawyers from all over Europe and the world who sit in at The Hague, the European Court of Human Rights, and that works very well. We would like to model it on that because The Hague doesn't deal specifically with children's issues. It deals specifically with the, the bigger issues of governments and, and, and the like. I don't, we're building our infrastructure right now. To say where you would place that would be hard for me to say because I want the children to decide that uh, long term. Once we get to the stage where the children have enough political clout, we've got to build that all up. You see, we're doing that from the ground up too, that they would make that decision. But whatever country it would be in, sure, it really wouldn't matter. They would probably be rather like the children's Nuremberg courts, something on those lines. But perhaps with the model that Bishop Tutu created, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that there could be forgiveness by the children, that the children would show the world how to forgive. So it's all the infrastructure is being built, and when the children make that decision, I'll have the answer. There are several questions uh, that relate to a desire to, to the specific actions that individuals can take. Uh, yesterday in this community, another child uh, died in their own home by their own family's hand. And there are several questions that really ask the question, in fact, it says, what can the average citizen do to stop this, this uh, rampant violence? Um, just care enough to do something about it. I mean, if you see in your street, I mean, I've gone to areas in the United States where people have said to me, well, we don't have any trouble here. And I've said, get in your car and drive just a few yards and see if you can find anybody today who needs help. And you, will, you won't have far to go to find them. I think it's everybody's responsibility to make sure that they do remember that the person is their brother or sister and not a stranger. I sound as I'm one of those up in the air, da 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 da. I'm not, I'm not really try explaining this as I'd like to. An act of kindness goes an awful long way, even on a daily basis. Even if you were just to go up and help an old woman get her shopping, the little things that seem so unimportant are actually huge. Do you have any specific examples internationally where you've seen a, a community change its character, change its relationship to children, change and and begin behaving in new ways. Yeah, Ireland. I mean, in Ireland, we had uh, we were never bad to our kids. Child abuse in Ireland was virtually unheard of, um, and we certainly didn't starve them. But we had absolutely no trouble blowing them up or shooting them. We were kind of contradiction in terms, you know. We said, "God, we'll never abuse our children." Abuse comes in many forms. You know, I've seen families abuse their children, even by expecting them to be something probably intellectually that they're never going to be and putting the kind of peer pressure on them which really does terrible things to them. You would have to look out and say that there must be problems here or you wouldn't have Columbine. You wouldn't have those kinds of things happening. That's a scream from the young people to tell you that there's something wrong that you should be looking at. As a, uh, as a person who's been in this struggle very deeply for a number of years, what organizations do you see as kind of the, as the premier organizations that are making a significant contribution to the reduction of violence for children? A lot of them do incredible work. To name one off specifically would do the other in injustice. So I'm not going to stand up and say, well, UNESCO is better than UNICEF or UNICEF. The truth is, UNESCO, UNICEF, Save the Children, All Children Together, da 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 They're all separate entities. And I have a bit of a problem with that because a lot of the times UNESCO won't know what UNICEF's doing, UNICEF won't know what Save the Children are doing, Save the Children don't know. They're not unified. And it seems to me that everybody's guarding their dollars. And, and I don't like that. They become bureaucratic. I think what we have to do is unify them all. When we build the first centre, can I just give you, I don't want to be going on and on here, fine, but I, fine, I want fine. to give you, for instance, when we build our first centre of compassion for children, as it states on the Declaration of the Rights of Children, um, we will have the, in that a technical room. Which, you see, our children, if we don't hurry up, are going to be left out of the technological loop. They say that we've learned a lot technologically in the last 50 years. But within the next two, because we're now going cyberspace, 
We're going to be hit with more technology than we've had for the last 20. And I don't know about you, but I haven't caught up in the first two. <laughs> so it's going to be absolutely huge. We're going to have an operations room in that world, which would be like any military room, where we will have a map and we will have every organisation on the world who's out there and what they're doing and where the overlapping happens. And we will be developing every year a Consumer's Digest to read who's doing what and who's not and how they could be doing it better because I think that has to happen before we can do it right. I think we have to be, be more cooperative. The, the, the groups that are out there working for children, many of them not doing a great job, others doing a great job, have got to be more unified in doing it. Betty Williams, thank you for the spark you've ignited, for the movement you've led, and for being with us today.